Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. We have a wonderful young man that's going to be preaching the gospel for us this morning, Mr. Joe Bailey. Um, I was trying to think, Joe, when did you move up here permanently? How long ago was that? Okay, about six years. It seems seems longer and shorter all at the same time. So um, I just want to I want to say of Joe this morning that I have the pleasure of uh, living as his brother in Christ with um, and walking the Christian road with him. I have the pleasure of serving in ministry alongside of him, and I've had the have the pleasure of working with him and. Uh, I can I can say um from everything that I see there he's a he's a young man which I can't I can't find any fault fault in. He loves the Lord with all of his heart. Um these are Zach's words, so uh but he loves the Lord with all of his heart. Um he's given himself faithfully to the study of the word and to saying yes to God with his whole life and um man from everything I'm observing that is so rare. For, for a young man, um, just to, to say, God, I'm going to go your way, I choose that. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. Um, and I, I know we're a blessed church to have him serving in our, in our ministry, um, to having serving alongside of our youth and pouring into these, these young men. He's got wisdom beyond his years. Um, and I want to commend you, you young men. If there's somebody you could look at, that would be worth patterning your lives after as a young man, an example, you would, you would be hard pressed to find a better man than this man right here. Um, he's humble. He's willing to follow leadership and he's willing to speak up for the truth. And, uh, guys, that's, that's hard to come by. Um, besides your dad's, he's a good, he's a good man. And so, uh, church, let's receive what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Let's, let's accept Joe. And uh, let's make our hearts and our minds willing to hear, to listen, to receive, and to respond. Can we do that this morning? Joe, come and share the word. Appreciate that, Zach. That's uh, that's very kind. Um, I will say that I feel um, like I am... Uh, What's a good word to describe my position? Like I'm standing in the shoes of a giant is how I feel. Um, I'm not the pastor of this church. I'm not equipped <laughs> to pastor this church. Um, and I feel that um, I'm following in the footsteps of, of an incredible leader in Pastor Luke. Um, and I feel that um, I don't know that I'm able to really do him justice in preaching. He's an incredible preacher. He's an incredible leader. Um, and I, I hope that I can make him proud this morning uh, with the message that I have um, but I, I think that some of us might go away today and say, man, I'm ready for Pastor Luke to come back. <laughs> so um, I first want to commend my pastor, and I am incredibly honored um, to be in the position that I am. I actually, some of us might be able to relate. Um, I can't help but ask myself, how did I get here? <laughs> um, just a, a kid from Louisiana um, came up here and 
standing in the shoes of an incredible pastor. It's I'm honored, and I'm grateful. So, and then having following up following up tra- uh, Kiki's message from last week about Christian hospitality, I'm like, man, how am I gonna? I mean, it's not a competition, but how am I gonna compete with this? You know. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead with my message. I'm gonna pray really quick this morning before I get started. Lord, help me this morning to preach words that you would have us to know. Um, and I ask that you help us all this morning to receive the word that you would have us receive, Lord, and um, just help us this morning to think with wisdom and with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. So my, the title of my message today is called Failing with Wisdom. Now, some of us are like, hey, Joe, that don't make no sense. How do you fail with wisdom? Well, I'll get there. Um, but I do want to say that this message pushed the limits of my, my cognitive capacity. Um, it was a very, it was a difficult message to prepare. Um, so with that said, I'm going to get started. A few weeks ago, uh, we went rock climbing with the students in our youth group. And rock climbing is, there's a, a gym called the Alaska Rock Gym. And it's really just an artificial um, wall to recreate uh, a rock wall as if you'd see on the side of a mountain to, to climb a wall, you know what I mean? It's a type of working out. And it's fun. So we took the students to do that. Um, and we went there, and there was an employee there who um, gave us an orientation on how to rock climbing, on how to rock climb. He says, uh, so here's the things that you need to do. Here's what you need to know about this. Here's what you need to know about this. Here's what you do. Here's what you avoid, right? It's the ju- just an orientation for our safety and whatnot. So after he gives us all the basics of, of rock climbing, he actually took a very large amount of time to explain how to fall. Um, and I was kind of surprised at that. So he says, okay, don't jump off of the top, because if you jump off the top, your risk of injuring yourself is high, right? It's what, like, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 feet tall. And then he says, don't land on your hands, because there's a thick foam pad. He says, if you land on your hands, it could hyperextend your hand backwards, um, and you could damage your wrist. And then he says, don't land on your feet. If you land on your feet, <laughs> your your foot could roll outward, and if, if that happens, then uh, you could damage your ankles. And I'm like, dude, don't land on my hands, don't land on my feet. What am I supposed to do? How do I fall off of this wall? So he, uh, and then he climbs up and gives us an example, like two or three times. I was actually laughing to myself as this guy, he would climb up, he would fall backwards, he would softly land on his feet and roll backwards. He says, land on your back, not your hands or feet. And as I'm over here laughing to myself, I actually thought to myself, as I'm watching this guy and laughing in my head, I thought to myself, hey, you know what? Now that I remember a few years ago, I sprained my ankle jumping off of one of these walls because I landed on my foot, and sure enough, it rolled outward, and I felt a pop, and my ankle was swollen and purple, and I, was, I thought to myself, man, I sure wish I knew how to fall. I sure wish I knew what this guy taught me whenever I, I fell. So as it turns out, there is a strategy to falling to mitigate injury. There is a good and a bad way to fall. The foam is there to help, but only if it's used correctly. So there's a proper way to fall when climbing. And I want to suggest this morning, church, that there's also a proper way to fall as Christians. When we fail God and when we fail others, there is a wise and a healthy response. And at the same time, there is a horrible and detrimental response to our own failure. It could spiral downward rapidly or the damage could be repaired and mended and we could turn out better for it. So I want to examine uh, this thought in more detail today, but I think to really examine this thought, what I, I need to begin with is by understanding the nature of sin uh, within the human heart. 
Now, this is a very broad topic, but um, I'm basically going to scratch the surface of it. So I think that sin is a topic that deserves our attention because we are, in fact, merely human. Um, so the employee at the rock gym, he would never have to explain to us how to fall if he could trust that everyone was a perfect rock climber, right? There's no value in teaching you how to fail if you could bank on the idea that everyone would ultimately succeed, um, I mean, as it turns out, rock climbing is hard, and as it turns out, people do, in fact, fall off the wall, sometimes even sprain your ankle. Um, but if we were perfect people, then there would be no need for this message. Um, but as Christians, we are flawed people living or striving to live by a perfect standard, which means that failure to live perfectly will probably occur. So sin and failure are unfortunately and inevitably a part of Christian living. Now, I'm not saying that we have to sin. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit does not empower us to combat sin. He certainly does. I'm only saying that we probably will, unfortunately. Okay? Which means that our failure deserves some examination. Okay? So, how do flawed Christians strive to live according to a perfect standard given by a perfect God while maintaining a flawed nature. So, I mentioned that sin and flaw and failure. I mentioned these things. So, what I want to do for the next few moments is try to examine sin from the Bible. So, the Hebrew word for sin is chata. Can you guys can you guys try to say that this morning? Chata, chata. It kind of sounds like uh, what Bruce Lee would say while he's right in the middle of a fight. Um, but what chata most literally or most often translates into is missing the mark. Um, that's what it literally means most often. Um, I'm going to use an example in Judges chapter 20. You don't have to turn here. I'm going to give us, there's two broad passages we'll move into a little bit later, but for now, um, I have a few passages I want to look at. You don't have to turn turn there. Um, If you're quick, you can, but I'm not going to wait for you. So among, it says in Judges 20, it says, among Benjamin's elite troops, 700 were left-handed, and each of them could sling a rock and hit a target within a hair's breadth without missing. The word for missing is chata, without sin. It means to miss the mark. They could sling a stone and nail their target without missing, without sinning. So the most basic understanding of sin, I think, is missing your target. Now this broadly translates from Hebrew to English. And what I mean is that um, Hebrew words don't always, actually really almost never have a direct translation to English. Um, this is why uh, I think we ought to respect Bible translators because it's an incredibly difficult endeavor. Endeavor, But um, Hebrew words, especially Hebrew verbs, have a broad variety of things that they, that they could mean and they need to be understood within their context. So whenever I, says that, whenever I say that sin most often means missing the mark, I'm not saying that's only what it means. Um, I'm saying that that's often how it's translated, but the real translation is actually a lot more broad than that, so I'll I'll examine that a little bit more. But I think that to understand sin simply is to understand the concept of trying and failing. So to think of the idea of missing the mark, that uh, intrinsically applies that there is a target to hit, right? And missing the target that you're trying to hit results in sin. So when we fall short of God's standard of living for our lives, which is the target we sin. 
So this can be an action or even a, a failure to act on something that we know that we should do. I think of uh, James who said, for anyone who knows what to do and fails to do it, for that person it's sin. So it could be something that we do wrong or something that we fail to do right. Another example I want to look at is Cain in the story of Cain and Abel. Um, so this, uh, in Genesis 4, this happens right after um, right after Abel gives an offering to God that he accepted and Cain gives an, gives an offering that God did not accept. Cain was angry. And in verse 6, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Hata is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This paints a picture that's a little bit different than missing the mark. In this case, sin has like a predatory nature. It wants you. It wants to devour you. It wants to overthrow you. Your job is to overrule it. What does he say there? You must rule over it. It's, it's the implication that sin is ready and it's waiting to attack. It's eager to devour us. The Bible shows sin to be something like a wild beast looking to devour us in this case. <clears throat> so I think that sin's goal, um, or really the enemy's goal, is to use sin in our lives to destroy us and others around us. It separates us from God. It harms our relationships with each other. And by defining sin, I think that the Bible offers a very deep and profound diagnosis of human nature. Um, one of the ways it does this is by showing our desire for sin, or our sin nature, or sin being sort of um, deep within us. Um, as disgusting and harmful as sin is, we seem to hunger for it. So wh- why do we crave the things that we know would destroy us? It's a hard question to really answer. Um, but in Jeremiah 17, he says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and it is desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? So Jeremiah shows that sin is buried within us. It's like a parasite trying to devour us from the inside out. So it's like a beast trying to devour us, and it's also like a parasite trying to devour us, right? It's terrible. So it's a failure What we've seen so far is sin is a failure to live up to God's standard for our lives. It is a wild beast trying to devour us, and it is a parasite within us trying to eat us from the inside. Church, sin is a dreadful thing. So I'm not trying to imply this morning that we need to sin, nor should we throw our hands up and say, well, I can't do it. I might as well sin because it's impossible for me to combat, right? That's not what I'm getting at, nor is that a biblical idea at all. I'm not implying that we have no control over our behavior. What I'm getting at is that sin is the enemy of Christian living. It wants to destroy and it wants to corrupt. And I think that a responsible Christian knows how to navigate Christian living with this enemy perpetually in the way. Church, I hate to break it to you, but sin's not going away. Temptation will not leave you. As long as you live and as strong as you get, temptation will not leave you. Some of you guys are like, wow, Joe, this is a bleak message. Well, just wait. Um, I heard a man say one time that if, if the enemy can't outright kill us or keep us from committing ourselves to God, 
His next best bet is to make us useless for God's kingdom. Church, sin keeps us from investing into others. It roots selfishness within us. I actually heard a psychologist say that um, people often want to dominate others, okay? So much so that people don't want others to succeed past them. He even goes so far as to explain that spouses often withhold compliments from each other to keep from feeling like they're being outperformed. Don't look at your spouse. Um, Parents attempt to stunt the growth of their children to keep them from becoming more successful from them, more successful than them. I said stunt their growth. I'm not talking about like putting putting bricks on their head to keep them from growing. Um, When I say stunt their growth, what I really mean is to keep them from growing more mature or competent so that they could be sure that they stay under their thumb, right? Um, And remember, this is the secular psychologist's diagnosis of, of our behavior. He also says that friends speak negatively of one another so that they can make themselves look better. Church, sin keeps us from lifting others up. For the upcoming generation to truly go, to truly grow, sometimes we need to let them stand on our shoulders. We need to teach them in a loving way and in a way that allows them to grow and outdo us in every area of life. We ought to strive for this. Students, I want you to outdo me, okay? I'm not saying that I'm going to hold back so that you could do better than me. I'm saying that I'm going to strive my hardest, and I want you to outstrive me. That's what I want to see. I want you to genuinely do better than my greatest effort. Now, this is Christian living, church, but the sin that is rooted deep within us It would keep us from truly loving others and from lifting them up and equipping them to be successful Christians. Now, naturally, no one really wants to be outperformed or outdone, right? But in a Christian sense, this is actually often the best decision. Acknowledging others and striving for their growth is good and healthy humility. But sin is like a virus that lurks deep within us. I, I want to. I think that um, sin could ultimately be summed up, um, and it's ultimately rooted, I think, in Jesus's uh, great commandment, which the students should know this. I should ask one of them to say it. Um, in Matthew 22, Jesus' great commandment, he says, "Someone asked Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment of all?'" And Jesus responds, and he says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus goes so far as to say. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. Church, I would sum up sin by saying it is ultimately a failure to love God and to love your neighbor. So with this said, to return to my introduction about rock climbing and and falling with wisdom, is there a proper way to sin? Biblically speaking, absolutely not. Sin is purely destructive. Deadly even. And not only that, but sin is taken very seriously by God. So much so that so much so that he issues justice on people due to their sin. Sin is something that he does not take lightly. It is deadly serious, church. Sin 
sin does nothing but bring destruction to us and to our environment. And if sin is allowed to persist in a Christian, it will corrupt you from the inside out. Only through Jesus can we overcome the consequences and the burden of sin. Now, there's not a good way to sin, okay? But there is certainly a good response to our sin. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. So to do that, I want to look at the lives of Saul and David. So the my first point that I want, my first of two points that I really want to make is from bad to worse. For the ones who are saying, Joe, this is a bleak message. It gets worse before it gets better, let me say. Um, and you can up, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to read all the way through verses 7 through 12. Um, I'm going to read this out of the uh, NLT. It says, <clears throat> Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finished with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, What is this that you have done? Saul replied, listen to Saul's reply, because this is what we're really going to be looking at. Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You're referring to David. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What I want to point out in this first is that before Samuel even accuses Saul of doing anything wrong, he begins making excuses for himself. It's, it's like he knew that he did something wrong the moment he offered the sacrifice. And when he saw Samuel, he's like, oh, I got, I got to figure out a way to get out of this, right? He starts justifying himself. He says, I saw that my men were scattering from me. And listen, he says, you didn't arrive when you said that you would. So Samuel, it's kind of your fault if you think about it. Which obviously that doesn't fly. Church, I want to suggest that making excuses is a major danger, which by the way rhymes. Making excuses is a major danger after having done something wrong. Okay? Do not excuse yourself in your failure. That is detrimental. This is what Saul does here. So he begins blaming Samuel. This is actually a very similar scenario to what we see in the Garden of Eden. After Adam's fall, it says that he hears God walking in the garden, and he goes and he hides because they were naked. And what happens, and what I'm noticing similarly, is that Adam and Eve went and hid before God ever accused them of doing anything wrong. That means that they knew the moment that they did what they did, that they had done something wrong. 
And then Adam does the same thing that Saul does. Adam says, um, it was the woman that you gave me who gave me the fruit. So God, it's kind of your fault if you think about it. He's trying to relieve himself of the guilt that he probably feels. So they knew that they had done something wrong before God even corrected them. So why hide unless you knew that you had done something wrong? And then why attempt to excuse yourself if you know that you had done something wrong because you've gone and hidden yourself? It's like such a flawed way of thinking, you know? It's like a, a child grabbing a cookie from the cookie jar that he's not supposed to have and then going and hiding and it, their parents finding him and saying, "You, what are you doing? Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you did because you went and hid, didn't you? So this is the same thing that Saul is doing. He begins excusing himself even before his behavior was corrected. Church, listen, creating excuses for ourselves when we know that we have done something wrong is an elusive way to avoid conviction. Okay, it's really self-deceptive. And it is not productive. It is not good. It's not healthy. This is a foolish way to fail. Okay? The only thing that you can really hope to succeed in by doing this is like possibly convincing the people around you that um, you're justified in your behavior, but you will not escape the conviction of the Lord if you know that you've done something wrong. So the only thing that we could truly achieve by excusing our behavior, um, especially when we know that it's wrong, is robbing ourselves from a learning opportunity in the future. Now the natural thinking behind this is that a person can declare their inno- their innocence if they were never truly at fault, right? So if you've convinced yourself that you never did any th- anything wrong, then what is there to change in the future? Does that make sense? It's like if I didn't really do anything wrong, then why do I need to change my behavior in the future? If you continue to convince yourself that you're actually in the right, you'll n- you won't grow that way. In Proverbs 30, um, the, uh, a proverb of King Agur Um, in verse 20, he says, an adulterous woman consumes a man, then wipes her mouth and says, what's wrong with that? Obviously, there's a lot wrong with that. That's not a good thing to do. It's horrible. But the, the woman used to explain this scenario here, the adulterous woman will continue doing adulterous things because she refused to see any issue with her behavior. Why change what's not wrong? If she doesn't see it as wrong, why change your behavior, right? So when you've come to a point in your life where you're justifying your mistakes, you're bound to repeat them. And you will keep yourself, listen, you will keep yourself from becoming a more holy person. If we go down this train of thought, church, we will never take steps toward looking more like Jesus, which is just what he's called us to do. And we make our failures much worse when we, when we refuse to see them for what they are. I want to suggest, church, that this is a foolish way to fail, okay? It's destructive. So Saul, he justifies himself in this case. And I think that, I really think that this is the beginning of a downward spiral in Saul's life that trails him all the way down to the end of his life, really. This is awful because Saul had so many opportunities to humble himself before God and to turn things around for himself and his family. I mean, how many, how many times has the Lord shown you grace and mercy? I mean, we know that 
most of us, we know that from experience. And if you don't know it from experience, we've got thousands of years of history to show us God's goodness and mercy. Surely, Saul could have turned things around and changed. And I'll tell you that being king in Saul's scenario probably made humbling himself much more difficult, which is why I think God initially said, don't anoint a king, but Israel demanded it. I think that a lot of Saul's issues came with feeling like he could do no wrong. I really think that's one of the cores of his his issue. And I think that this really comes to a head when he sees David outperforming him. Remember whenever I said that uh, sin wants to put our allies beneath us? That's just what Saul does. And we see it in, in 1 Samuel 18. And this this scenario happens right after David kills Goliath. So after David kills Goliath, uh, the Israelite army, they basically rout the Philistine army, okay? And after this happens, they return to the nation of Israel And it says that when they returned, the women were singing. Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul hates that David was being honored above him. Like, he's the king. David's just a kid. And David is receiving more honor than Saul. He ought to be happy for David. But what he does is allow himself to be filled with jealousy. Actually, in verse 9, it says, This made Saul very angry. So from that time forward, listen, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. He kept a jealous eye on David. Saul actually chose to persist in his jealousy. This is detrimental. Um, There's a proverb that says, Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy is a horrible thing, and Saul chose to persist in it. So church, I ask you as we move forward, I ask you to examine your own heart as I work through these things. Saul allowed his sinful behavior to lead into more sinful behavior. It's, it's kind of similar to lying, right? Like whenever, when you tell a lie, if you tell a lie, you've got to like build up lies to maintain the lie. You know what I mean? So if you tell a lie and someone calls you out on your lie, well, what do you got to do? You got to make up a, another lie to to cover up your first lie, right? And eventually you find yourself under a mountain of lies and you've got to navigate this uh, sticky uh, scenario so that you can either uh, confess your mistake and be allowed to be vulnerable or you could continue to build a mountain of lies and navigate this uh, dangerous terrain. I think that much of sin is actually similar to this. That we could either continue to sin so that we can maintain our sin, or we can confess and turn away from it, which is, I think that's a lot more difficult. Well, I think both are very difficult, but I think it's difficult to confess our sin and to turn away from it, honestly. We can either snuff out our sin in our hearts, or we can allow it to grow. We can allow that parasite to keep on eating. So Saul, Saul chose to dwell on his sin He chose to persist in it. He deliberately chose to persist in his sin. He allowed it to determine his behavior. And because of Saul's jealousy, he led the the entire Israelite army against David to try to satisfy his anger against him and his jealousy. Like, he turns himself into just a corrupt tyrant. 
he uses the resources of the nation and really the resources that God blessed him with for his own means. He has gone way wrong. And I think that it's because he allowed sin to persist in his heart. And he was even obedient to it. So this is what I would call failing foolishly. Okay, Saul responded wrongly to his failure. He justified himself, he blamed others, and he persisted in his bad decisions. Church, we know that with God, mercy and grace is abundant and overflowing, but he gives us the choice to push that away. And when we choose to allow sin to persist in our hearts, it grows. Sin is like a hungry animal, and we could choose to feed its growth, or we could starve it and allow God's good and holy character to take root within us. And I would suggest that Saul's behavior reflects a failure that refuses correction. And this is a failure that has no real hope, a failure that refuses correction. It is bound to persist. I would call this failing foolishly okay so this leads me to my second and final point from bad to good my previous point was from bad to worse in Saul's case my second point is from bad to good and we're going to look at the life of David to see this so we've mentioned sin and its nature in the human heart and I've explained that sin could lead into a a sort of chain reaction of bad decisions now I, I want to try to explain how sin can be dealt with Okay, so in the life of David, you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. So I read in the NLT earlier. I'm actually going to read in the NIV now, mainly because I'm trying to keep you on your toes. But so this psalm, it occurs after David had been king for um, probably quite a while. But I'm going to read the little introduction here and then I'm going to explain some more and then I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So to remind us or to inform us for the first time, um, David, who's the one speaking in this psalm, who is now the king of Israel after Saul had gone. David skipped out on going to war. The text actually says that this is usually the season that kings go to war. And it says that David stayed home, basically. So he skipped out on going to war. He just sent his army out, right? And while he was chilling on his rooftop, he sees a pretty lady. He invites her over. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And he has Uriah, which is her husband, which is also mentioned in one of his 30 greatest warriors in his army. He has Uriah, her husband, murdered to cover up what he did. This is just an awful scenario. It's all, by the way, found in 2 Samuel 11. But the Bible even says, after it explains, it explains all of what happens in, in David's scenario, and it says that the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And then what happens afterward is Nathan comes to David, and he rebukes him for his misconduct. And he does it in a sort of elaborate way, um, but he, he issues the whole story so that he could bring to light the reality and the magnitude of what David had done. After David was rebuked, it says, David 
listen, church, it says that David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is key to my message today, David's response. Because David, in the same way as Saul, was rebuked by a prophet. Saul excused himself. He even went so far as to blame the prophet for Saul's own misbehavior. And David confesses his failure and repents. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this whole chapter. And I want to ask you that as we look at David's words here, remember the position that he's in. He has made a horrible mistake. And he was just called out um, by one of God's prophets. In Psalm 51, verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that, sin, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a, bo- a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper, Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. And burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Who would have thought that you get parched when you preach? I don't know how a pastor does it without drinking any water. Church, I want to suggest that. David's psalm here, Psalm 51, is perfectly exemplary of how to fail with wisdom. One of the worst things that could, I think that one of the worst things that could ever really happen to a person is losing communion with God. I pity the person who once knew God and now chooses not to. So there, there are a few things in David's life that I, I said I wanted to look at. So, And I think that these things offer examples for us to take if we fail in sin. So there are three things I want to point at. The first thing is confess your sin. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. 
He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David confesses his sin. He does not ignore it. He does not justify or excuse himself. He recognizes his sin for the gross injustice that it truly is. He sees it just for what it is. So you may say, which is what I said, how can David say that he only sinned against God? Clearly he sinned against Uriah, the man he had murdered. He also sinned against Bathsheba, the woman who he um, went through adultery with. He sinned against the nation that he was appointed leadership over. How could he say that he only sinned against God? Against you and you only have I sinned. I want to suggest that David is using a a type of hyperbole here, um, which is a a literary tool used for a, a greater level of understanding. Let me explain. It's similar to whenever Jesus said, anyone who comes to me and does not hate father and mother cannot be my disciple. It's a literary tool used to show the extremity of differences, okay? Now, of course, we need to love our parents. That's in the Ten Commandments. Jesus believed that we need to love our parents. Um, But we need to love Jesus so much more that in comparison, we hate our parents, okay? Now, we should not hate our parents, but we should love Jesus a lot, okay? That's what he's getting at. And I think that similarly... David is trying to explain that he sinned so much more against God in comparison to his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and Israel that it's as if he only sinned against God. It's like the the scale is so different that his sin against God outweighs everything that, that matters also. So David acknowledges his sin against God as his biggest failure in this scenario. So David, the first thing that I think we need to mimic is that David confesses his sin. Okay, the second thing is that he sought forgiveness. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I think that it's invaluable for us as Christians to realize that God is the only one who has authority over the sin in our hearts. Um, He is the only one who can empower us to truly correct our sin. And he is the only one who can truly fix the issue of sin within our hearts. Church, all of our salvation, all of our repentance, all of our eternal hope rests on the shoulders of God. Seeking forgiveness shows shows that we have done wrong. And that God is the only one who can really fix it. It acknowledges our powerlessness in this kind of scenario. God is the one who we really need to come to. He's the one who can really forgive us. The third thing that David did that I want to point to is he sought to restore communion. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I think the worst feeling that I may have ever had is feeling as if God has withdrawn his favor from me. So, 
I felt emotional pain, okay? I felt physical pain. Um, I feel extreme nervousness at the thought of preaching to an intelligent congregation that's led by a pastor who I've got great respect for. Um, But I think that all of the pain that I have felt in my life pales in comparison to feeling like I have disappointed my heavenly father. It's, it's like a loving father looking down and saying, I am disappointed in you, son, and you can do better. What an awful feeling. Church, I think we need to mimic David's behavior in attempting to restore broken communion with God. We ought to fight tooth and nail to restore that communion, okay? We need to fast. We need to pray. We need to seek him with everything in us. Listen, church, do not allow a broken friendship with, between God and you to go unfixed. Do not allow that to happen. Now, this is not to imply that we lose our salvation when we sin. That is not a biblical idea. It isn't a biblical idea. It is not uh, biblical to think that every time we do something wrong, we, like, fall in and out of salvation that would our salvation would really depend on luck if that were the case like oh man when was the last time i sinned did i did i ask for repentance like if you're lucky enough then you would have asked for repentance before you die or before jesus comes back that's not biblical okay we do not lose our salvation every single time we we do something wrong god does not boot us out of the kingdom altogether when we do wrong we would ultimately have no real hope if that were the case. But church, he certainly shows disappointment in his children. Especially, I think especially seasoned Christians who ought to look very much like Jesus. I think he's hardest on on those people. And I think that this is also one of the ways that God compels us to grow. So, the third thing that David did that we need to emulate when we sin is attempt to restore communion. Now, I want to suggest that David wasn't necessarily less sinful than Saul. This is not the only sin or a, a foolish thing that David has done in the Bible. David did a lot of really uh, foolish things. Both of these men, David and Saul, made huge mistakes. So in what way then is David different? David was called a man after God's own heart. Whenever, Even whenever um, God... Samuel rebuked Saul. He said, God has found a man after his own heart. So in what way is David different? And Jesus also refers to himself as a son of David. It's like saying, I'm the son of a man who is just as broken as every other man, right? Which he was, of course, saying that he's got a royal lineage in saying that. But still, the son of God referred to himself as also a son of David. So then how was David different? I want to suggest that David failed with wisdom. In his failure, he sought after God. Where Saul justified himself and blamed others and persisted in his bad decisions, David confessed his mistakes. He repented. He sought to restore communion with God. Church, this is how we ought to fail. So I, I think that the reward for a failure that is responded to in a proper wor- in a proper way can actually be very good. So there, 
I think that the Lord has a tendency to use our failures to, to, for great purposes. Um, I think that that's ex- exemplified in the Bible. He has a tendency to turn things around for good. And he has a tendency to use our flaws to do that. It's incredible, really. It's a, it's a poetic and incredible way that the Lord works. But here, I'm going to list another three things. Here are some of the outcomes of wise failure, okay? First, it results in worship when we examine the grace and mercy of God. This is just what Susie said this morning. I think that one of the greatest tools for growth is learning from your mistakes and learning from the mistakes of others. When we fail in an area, we can come into the situation in the future with a greater level of awareness. It's like we can, when we know that we have potential to fail in an area, we can go into that situation with a a sort of predetermined resolution and say, I know that this is coming. I know that sin is lurking right around this corner. I need to be aware of it and I need to be prepared for it. That's what failure teaches you to do. I think that this is why great Christians long to worship God and to live for him. I mean, think of Paul. Zach said this morning that Paul said that I am the chief of sinners. He said Christ came to save sinners and I'm the worst among them. I think that this is why Paul longed to worship God because he has tasted the great mercy of God. I think that the Christian greats that we have throughout history to exemplify ourselves after, I think that they they were able to see their sin for just what it is and they chose to seek God for forgiveness and this results in worship. The second outcome of wise failure is it offers a learning experience for us. So one of the greatest tools for growth is learning from your mistakes and learning from the mistakes of others. Like I said, when we fail, we can come into the situation prepared. It's like saying, remember what happened last time? I'll be sure to avoid that pitfall this time. We don't have to embody the proverb that says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. We do not have to do that. We don't have to be this way. We can use our experience as a learning opportunity for the future. Um, let's look at David's, let's return to this psalm in David's psalm in verses 12 and 13. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I think that because of David's failure, we can learn from his mistakes. Failure offers us a learning experience. I grew up with two older brothers, okay, and they made mistakes. (laughs) Um, But I was able to witness their mistakes and the outcome of their decisions to a point where I didn't have to make that decision and face that mistake my own because I saw it exemplified before me. It taught me to avoid those dangers altogether. I learned from mistakes that I never actually had to make. Thank you, Austin, if you're watching. This is what wisdom teaches us. Learn from the failures of others. The third outcome of wise failure. It equips us to teach younger generations. I'm going to make this point, I'm going to conclude, and then we'll be finished. So returning to David's statement in this psalm, he says, Then I will teach your ways 
to rebels so that they will return to you. In David's failure, he gained personal experience to teach others with. Now, we can do the same with our failure so long as we use the opportunity. There's an opportunity in our failure to teach others, to teach youth. But the thing is that if we're so ashamed of of our shortcoming, or if we so desperately want respect from other people, so much so that we refuse to allow those people to see any flaw in us, then we may never draw experience from our failures to teach them. And what I mean is that we need to be humble enough to let ourselves and others learn from our mistakes. We need to be humble enough to allow that to happen. Just like David did. I think this is just what David did. Which is the exact opposite of what Saul did. Saul tried to keep David from outgrowing him, but godly wisdom teaches us to empower the growth of others. And this can be done through our mistakes. Zach, if you don't mind coming up. Church, as Christians, I think that it's vital that we learn to deal with our mistakes. Okay? There is an improper, an improper way to deal with them, which leads us into a downward spiral, is what we see in Saul's life. It's filled with pain and destruction for ourselves and for others. And there's also a proper way to deal with our mistakes, which results in a restored and sometimes a reinvigorated relationship with God. I think that failing offers lessons for us to inform our growth and maturity as Christians, and it offers an arsenal of experience to use for the growth and learning of other people. Church, Christianity is hard. (laughs) Living as a Christian, truly living as a Christian after God's heart is difficult. Christ compels us to grow. He constantly pushes us. He challenges us. He teaches us. He allows us to endure difficulty. He refines us so that we would look more like him in our living. And failing with wisdom is a critical part of Christian growth. Church, I want to invite you to respond to this message in in a number of ways. For one, if you feel that you're a Saul and you're excusing yourself from your mistakes or you're blaming others for your sin, or if you're choosing to persist in bad decisions, I want to invite you to come to the altar and do what David did and confess your mistakes and to seek forgiveness and to restore communion with the Lord. It's a vital part of our Christian living. It's a vital vital part of our, our life as Christians. And if you don't know the Lord at all, then I want to advise you that, I want to tell you that your sin does not put God out of your life altogether, okay? God is not going to ignore you because you've done something wrong. And nor can you fix yourself before coming to know the Lord. As a matter of fact, you can never really fix yourself. Only through Jesus can the issue of sin be dealt with. I also want to tell you that sin ultimately sends us away from the Lord. It ultimately... Um, ruins our relationship with God, but through Jesus, that relationship can be restored. So if you don't know Jesus, if you've never confessed your sin, I, I advise you to do that this morning, to come to Jesus this morning, confess your sin, come to him and invite him into your heart and into your life. If you're a Saul, choose to be a David, choose to fail with wisdom. Lord, 
Thank you so much for your goodness in our lives. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for your grace and mercy that you have toward us in our failure, Lord. Thank you so much for challenging us to be quality Christians. Lord, thank you for the work that you do in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, you are good beyond what I could even truly uh, fathom or imagine. Help us to see that goodness and help us to come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to respond to the message this morning, church. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.